welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Justin Hurwitz, Associate Professor of Law and Co-Director of the Space, Cyber, and Telecom Program at Nebraska College of Law. We will discuss his article, Madison and Shannon on, in, on Social Media, and his work in progress and information theory of information pollution. So welcome to the show, Gus. It's great to be here. Great. So I really thought this was a fascinating uh, paper and proposed paper on some ideas I'd never encountered before. So in particular, for listeners like me who haven't heard of it before, could you talk a little bit about uh, what information theory is and how it conceptualizes the transformation of information? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I should start by saying, like many of my papers, I really dislike what I'm arguing here and the direction that my ideas are taking me, which is part of why I'm really excited about uh, uh, this project um, in particular. Um, I am, in general, a, a big First Amendment marketplace of ideas kind of person, and uh, these projects are, I think, uh, uh, shots across the bow of uh, some of the underlying uh, ideas of the uh, uh, marketplace of ideas. Um, so information theory is uh, a somewhat esoteric but incredibly important mathematical theory of in, uh, information. Um, it was uh, developed in the uh, early 20th century, 1940s, really, uh, at Bell Labs by um, a mathematician Claude Shannon uh, to answer the question that Bell Labs was wondering, um, how much how many phone calls, how much conversation can we fit on a phone wire? Can we quantify the amount of uh, ones and zeros, the amounts of bits of information uh, that we can compress voices into and uh, quant use that to quantify how large we need to uh, build the phone network in order to carry a given number of voices? And actually, the term bit um, a, a binary unit of information comes from Claude Shannon. Uh, he coined the term, um, and it's the smallest amount of information that you can store, just a simple one or zero, yes or no. If you have less than that, you can't communicate anything. So once you go from zero to one or zero, you can start communicating information. Um, and uh, the, the idea from information theory that uh, folks might be most familiar with, uh, at least colloquially, is the signal-to-noise ratio. It's a common term, the signal-to-noise ratio. Um, this is in uh, Shannon's mathematical formulation of information theory, the defining characteristic of bandwidth. So if you look at a communications channel, um, you need to look at the signal-to-noise ratio in order to understand how much information that uh, bandwidth channel can carry. If you have zero noise on the channel, then you can uh, effectively carry infinite amount of information, but uh, there's noise in every channel. Uh, and uh, the fascinating thing uh, from this for uh, uh, my work uh, and the, the both the uh, Madison and Shannon project and the next project um, is that when you exceed the communications capacity of a channel, any additional information gets interpreted as noise, not signal. So it actually worsens the signal to noise ratio, which reduces the capacity of the channel. So uh, it's a negative externality. It actually destroys productive information once you're at uh, the channel capacity um, of a channel to carry uh, uh, constructive information. Mm. Well, so as I read your paper, it was kind of, at least in a sense, using this concept or this set of concepts from information theory 
as a kind of of metaphor. And I guess on on my reading anyway, it seemed as if the channel in itself in a sense was almost the ability of individuals to understand the information that they were receiving. Is that the right way to understand the way they're using the idea in the paper? Uh, yes, it, it's definitely um, a metaphor, but a I think it's a pretty strong metaphor. I, I don't mean to say that we have necessarily uh, reached the point of information saturation for uh, individual humans, that we're getting so much information that we can't get anymore. Though uh, I, I do look in the Madison and Shannon piece at um, uh, ongoing research in uh, the cognitive psychology field that looks at the information density of various languages spoken around the world, um, which actually finds that uh, most human languages have a roughly constant information rate, meaning that uh, the spoken word in various languages communicate the same number of ideas per second, uh, 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 to use a crude measure of information rate, uh, as uh, other languages. Um, and we, uh, an intuitive way of thinking about this is words uh, that tend to have, uh, languages that is, that tend to have uh, simpler word structures, simpler uh, grammatical structures, um, or fewer words, people tend to speak at at a higher rate. So you'll get more words per second where each word has less information. Um, other more informationally complex languages uh, that have uh, many, many wor- more words in the vocabulary or use more sounds or more complex grammars, um, people tend to speak at a slower rate. Um, and uh, these cognitive psychologists working in this field uh, take that to suggest that human brains have evolved to have a pretty constant ability to process at least spoken information, which suggests that uh, uh, this sort of thinking does have a uh, uh, real meaning to it in the uh, more than just mere metaphor sense. Mm. Well, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the kind of historical pedigree of the marketplace of ideas concept. I mean, after all, historically, the First Amendment has kind of presumed that more speech is better than less speech because good speech will ultimately outcompete bad mm-hmm. speech. Like, where did that assumption come from? And why did, at least arguably, that assumption hold true, at least for a period of time? Right. So it's surprisingly recent. Um, we think that the marketplace place of ideas uh, concept, uh, and this is terrible, I apologize to you and uh, listeners, I am uh, working on so many papers uh, right now that I don't remember my case names or case citations. Ironic, perhaps, since we just uh, came from a workshop where you talk, were talking about plagiarism and attribution. So I'm not going to attribute uh, uh, specific uh, cases. But uh, the marketplace of ideas uh, idea is so common in um, uh, modern First Amendment theory, uh, it's really 1920s, 1930s that we start to see the marketplace of ideas metaphor used uh, in uh, First Amendment doctrine. Um, and uh, it, it's really ascendant. And it, in the, the pithy phrase uh, that the Supreme Court, uh, including the current uh, justices, so frequently uh, cite to, uh, uh, the solution to bad speech is more speech. Um, someone puts something problematic out there. We don't want the, to rely on the government to say, no, that problem, that idea is wrong. We're uh, going to uh, restrict uh, uh, information. We're going to restrict introduction of that idea into the discourse. Instead, we say, uh, if Professor Hurwitz's idea is stupid, four or five other people are going to say it's stupid, and no one's ever going to uh, pay attention to my idea. It's going to be swept into the dustbin of history, um, and that's how it works. Um, 
that works. Uh, it's a great model so long as there are uh, enough eyeballs, enough listeners, there's enough uh, information capacity, channel capacity um, for other people to experience and engage with the ideas. But if we're at a point where uh, we simply don't have time, we don't have the ability to continue engaging with those ideas, then uh, even bad ideas become, e even uh, good ideas can become bad ideas. If you're at the point where you can't read anything more um, and someone puts a good idea out there, well, the time you're going to spend engaging with that good idea is time that you're not going to be engaging with other ideas. So you're actually restricted in the amount of uh, uh, information you can engage with. Mm. Well, so you talk a little bit about the role of intermediaries or, or moderators of ideas as mm -hmm. well. Why do you think those are important to the marketplace of ideas? Um, so I somewhat quirkily uh, approach this in uh, the paper from uh, a information theory perspective. Um, unsurprisingly, um, engineers have been uh, working with information theory as a fundamental constraint around which they need to design uh, networks, communication systems for the last 60, 70, 80 years. Um, and one of the most important tools that uh, they use are intermediaries. In intermediaries can mean any number of things, but uh, uh, in this context, either aggregators or filters. So uh, one example uh, of an intermediary uh, would be a redistribution or a distribution network. If you have um, uh, 100 users who want to uh, get access to an idea or get access, watch a show on Netflix. Netflix doesn't actually send 100 streams uh, from the Netflix-controlled central server out to those 100 viewers. Instead, they distribute it to distribution nodes throughout the network. Um, and each of those, let's say there are 10 distribution nodes, each of those 10 distribution nodes might send the content uh, out to 10 users each. Um, and the effect of this is instead of uh, sending 100 individual streams out, you are only sending 10 seeding streams out across the macro scale network, the backbone, and then uh, uh, 100 uh, streams on local area networks um, or the distribution networks. So it's a more efficient use of the resource. Um, another form of intermediary is uh, a filter. Um, so what a filter does is it uh, screens out uh, noise or it rejects uh, harmful information or harmful signal um, and it uh, uh, ensures that only the uh, information containing the valuable signal uh, goes on to the user. Um, so uh, your television set, uh, the, all that the tuner is, is in fact a filter. It filters out every channel except for the channel that you want to watch, and then it sends the signal from that channel uh, uh, to the screen to be displayed. Um, this TV wouldn't work if you don't filter out all the uh, extraneous information. Um, uh, another thing that you can do, um, uh, actually the, the microphones that we're speaking into right now uh, do this, uh, they have low-pass filters on them. The, the really uh, uh, low-volume sounds in the background, they get filtered out so you can hear the voice more clearly. Um, if you were to take uh, that, uh, if you were to not filter out that background noise uh, when you send it to the amplifier, you're going to end up getting a in the background. So by filtering out that information, we're able to focus on uh, uh, the actual signal and exclude the noise. And the great thing about this is it 
doesn't just help us focus on the signal and exclude the noise. It actually allows us to communicate more information because at the receiving end, at our ears, at the television processing the signal, at the computer that's uh, recording this conversation, it's only recording the valuable information and it can exclude uh, uh, the uh, noise information so it can actually get more done. So what has changed in the marketplace of ideas to make it less efficient uh, in kind of prioritizing good speech and de-emphasizing bad speech? I mean, what's new and why doesn't it work as efficiently as it used to? So this is where we start to get... uh to things that I really don't like about the article. And uh, this is a strain of work that I'm engaged in right now. Um, first, I should say the marketplace is just as efficient as it ever has been. Um, uh, it's not so much a question of efficiency as what we're asking end users to do. And the simple answer, I'll just be boring and say, it's Twitter. Um, uh, it's uh, more technically disintermediation. Instead of relying on uh, uh, intermediaries, instead of relying on newspapers and the media and other uh, institutions to process information, uh, we're in a period of dramatic disequilibration where uh, each person, uh, or at least each person in a lot of the uh, uh, information-consuming communities uh, that folks like uh, academics and reporters uh, live in, we're being asked to read through thousands of tweets a day and follow hundreds or thousands of voices um, and uh, bear the cognitive load of filtering out the bad for the good, which is really difficult and it's uh, arguably saturating our ability to do so, which makes it harder not just to focus on the good information, but to reject the bad information. So that loss of uh, 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 intermediary, that loss of uh, the filter is really problematic. On the other hand, it's it's really great. Because um, filters, what do they do? They filter information and they select which information that, uh, gets to you. So the reality simultaneously is, yes, we are getting exposed to more voices. Uh, there's much more opportunity for um, uh, individuals and communities that historically haven't had access to the microphone of the media for them to get purchase in the marketplace of ideas. But uh, it, it does come at some cost. And one of the fundamental questions is, um, are we at a point where the marketplace of ideas can reassert itself? Are we just in a point of disequilibrium and in five or 10 years, um, new filters, new uh, 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 entities will come in that will allow us end users to manage all this information um, on our own? Or are we uh, at a point where uh, the marketplace uh, as more than metaphor is really failing and we need uh, uh, to, uh, at the risk of, alienating most of my intellectual allies. We need to socialize the informational uh, marketplace uh, to some extent. I hope the answer is no, but I'm not sure. And uh, uh, to uh, touch on the next paper that I'm working on, um, the most scary uh, part in many ways of the uh, information theory aspect of this is what I uh, said when I was uh, first talking about uh, what information theory tells us, which is the channel capacity is defined uh, in terms of the signal-to-noise ratio. When you exceed the signal-to-noise ratio, positive information can't be distinguished from noise. So if you're in a noisy room and uh, someone runs in there and they start shouting out truth, the most beautiful enlightened truth ever, they're shouting out positive, true, uh, uh, enlightening, enlightened ideas. 
they're in a noisy room. It's going to contribute to the din. And it's not going to be interpreted as enlightenment by anyone in the room. And in fact, it's going to increase the background volume. And everyone in the room who was having a conversation is going to have a harder time with that conversation. So there's a, a negative externality here. Um, and if, and this is a contestable hypothesis, I don't mean to assert that it's true, but uh, if we are at a point of information saturation, then the... Uh, uh, idea that the response to bad speech is more speech idea is flat out false because at that point of information saturation all more speech is necessarily bad speech mm. well i wonder if part of the problem isn't like consumer choice as well right i mean there are mediated sources of information still available and yet it seems like in many cases consumers seem to choose saturated methods or means of communication rather than more mediated ones. I mean, to the extent that that's part of the problem, like how would we go about encouraging people to prefer like lower noise communications channels to higher noise ones? Yeah, so there's a lot to be said about that. On on the why side, um, there's uh, an illusion of control that's appealing, the idea that I'm going to tap right into the jugular of information and I'm going to get all that uh, news and uh, just the raw data coming to me. I don't trust the editors at the New York Times to get me good information. It's all out there. I'm just going to process it myself. Um, and there's something appealing. Uh, there is definitely a bias towards control that um, a lot of people uh, do have. And it takes a while to learn, wow, this is actually more information than I can handle. Um, there are uh, economic access to information uh, uh, issues in the background. The New York Times is damn expensive. Um, uh, uh, and if you want to have access to a range of different sources of information, uh, those uh, numbers just uh, compound. Um, one of the uh, concerns is, are we in a death spiral? Um, if we are at a point of information saturation, one of the things that you need to do is figure out what source of information give you good information. If you can't disambiguate between good information and bad information, it becomes difficult uh, for the marketplace to function especially if the uh, uh, marketplace is uh, the marketplace actors are endogenous to uh, the marketplace says um, to say if there are bad actors in the marketplace who don't care about informational quality but care about making a dollar then uh, they might prefer the state of disinformation um, and the low informational quality marketplace because hey they don't have good information to sell but if all information is bad information, then they have parity with everyone else. Mm. Um, I, I personally am optimistic. I think that we are in a point of rediscovery, um, that uh, new filters are uh, coming uh, into the marketplace and that uh, we uh, are, are going to see uh, better information curation over the uh, next several years. Possibly that will be uh, partly uh, due to new regulation or new laws, new understandings of defamation law, for instance. Um, but uh, a part of it also is driven by an optimism that the technology is going to prove to have uh, solutions that are more technology focused. There's so much that Twitter could do, for instance, um, to improve the informational value of any given tweet. Um, I don't know if they will get around to doing it, but if they don't, uh, there's opportunity for competitive entry there. Um, new companies coming into the marketplace uh, that uh, uh, a 
allow people to better evaluate the information content of a given tweet and reject tweets that are, I guess this wouldn't be Twitter anymore, they wouldn't be tweets. Um, so whatever we're going to call post, uh, uh, Twitter, post Twitter tweets, um, uh, new tools will develop, hopefully, uh, to give consumers better control over rejecting that noise. Mm-hmm. Well, so... How should these insights from information uh, technology, from uh, from information theory, affect how we think about First Amendment principles and concepts, if if at all? I mean, in other words, I kind of can't help but wonder, I mean, do you think we ought to be treating the First Amendment and the kinds of assumptions that have historically come along with it as a sort of ends in themselves or as just one among many potential kind of means to the end of better and more effective information transmission? Yeah, it's a a great question. And in uh, the next piece, I'm starting to delve into this. And there have been uh, three or four articles in the last couple of years uh, that have also been written along uh, these lines asking, what's the purpose of the First Amendment? Historically, we think of the First Amendment as being speaker-focused. It's about protecting speakers' right to speak, to enter into the marketplace of ideas. Um, Well, really, uh, that is arguably uh, completely wrong, and the purpose of the First Amendment is instrumental. It's to ensure access to information on the part of the listener and to ensure that we have an informed democracy. And we want to prevent the government from restricting speakers getting into that marketplace of ideas because then the government is going to be choosing what ideas the listeners have access to. And we we see strains of uh, this sort of thinking in many Supreme Court cases. Uh, 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 The famous ones are uh, certainly uh, Pacifica, Red Lion, Miami Herald uh, Publishing. Uh, We see it also in the Turner cases and uh, as well some of the uh, court's more recent cases. Um, The uh, famous uh, discussion um, in uh, uh, um, Red Lion and... uh, uh, Miami uh, Herald about uh, the First Amendment rights of the listeners and what does that actually mean? Well, it means that the purpose of the marketplace of ideas is to serve the consumer in that marketplace, not to serve the producer. Uh, so I'm um, an antitrust scholar. That's uh, uh, arguably my main area of uh, 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 scholarship and focus. Um, I believe in the consumer welfare standard, and let's bring the consumer welfare standard into the First Amendment. Um, and I'll, I'll say, again, we uh, uh, for, the, for the listeners, uh, uh, Brian just gave a workshop talk where he uh, was speaking about, uh, amongst other things, his work on plagiarism. Um, uh, I think there are echoes of who is the act of creation for? Is it for the listener or for the creator? Um, and uh, First Amendment scholarship and doctrine has always kind of said it's about the creator's right to throw stuff out into the marketplace of ideas. Well, if the information theory understanding of, hey, there's a finite capacity of this marketplace to filter and process and handle information is true, and when we reach that point, additional creators are actually harming consumers, we need to rebalance uh, uh, the listener uh, right to access to information understanding of the First Amendment. So what do you think, I mean, as a practical matter, what might a consumer welfare-oriented conceptualization of the First Amendment look like? I mean, would, it, would, would that imply, you know, government intervention into how 
speech marketplaces work? Would it imply obligations on the part of the organizations running speech marketplaces to take into account the kind of capacity of consumers to process and evaluate information? Would it involve some sort of antitrust-like way of thinking about competition between different platforms? Like, what do you think that would mean in practice? So first off, I'm kind of doing that shruggy shoulders emoji thing with an I don't know uh, sort of uh, uh, motion right now for uh, uh, folks since this is just audio. Um, uh, I I have some ideas uh, along these lines uh, that I'm working to develop in uh, uh, the new paper, um, thinking uh, are there time, place, manner sort of restrictions? Is this an intermediate scrutiny sort of idea? uh, one of the uh, things that I'm developing a little bit, uh, which uh, I'm, I'm sure will upset many, many people, uh, comes from antitrust law. Um, uh, there is efficiency to consolidation. There is an efficient uh, number of firms to have in any market. Uh, there's an efficient number of speakers to have in a market. Um, I don't know how we structure this from a First Amendment doctrine uh, approach, but the idea that everyone has a megaphone uh, clearly is not the efficient number of speakers. The challenge, of course, is how do we decide and who decides who gets the megaphones. Um, I'm really fascinated by uh, defamation law and how defamation law should change in the uh, modern speech environment. Um, our standards for uh, defamation law and harmful speech were developed in a pre-modern era of uh, speech, and I think there's a lot of uh, uh, work and uh, new thinking that needs to be given to how we think about defamation law. Um, speakers, if we are in an environment where incremental speech can be harmful speech merely by virtue of being incremental, that suggests that uh, there might be some uh, higher standard of care that those engaging in speech uh, need to be held to, especially uh, those in, uh, engaging in speech uh, either uh, who have amplifi- uh, megaphones or amplifiers, uh, the institutional media, um, so heightened, heightened defamation standards for the institutional media perhaps, or uh, for those engaging uh, in speech who traditionally haven't had to worry about their uh, amplifier, um, those tweeting. Um, should there be different speech standards uh, 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 when you're having a conversation in a small room versus uh, on the internet? Um, and again, I have to just keep emphasizing, I don't like these ideas. They, they, they make me feel really bad and uncomfortable, but uh, it, it's where the research takes me, which mm-hmm. um, uh, makes it uh, at least a academically rewarding, if not a personally rewarding uh, exercise. Yeah, well, so Gus, I mean, in, in closing, I couldn't help but note reading your your article and and your abstract that it almost seems like there's a specter in the background of of your of your work here and that specter is democracy right because in a sense as you acknowledge in the paper i mean the purpose of the first amendment at least on one conception is to make democracy possible Right. And I can't help but wonder if some of this work doesn't suggest that maybe we're expecting a little too much out of democracy and that maybe democracy could benefit from curation in some ways. The question is, who curates the curators? Um, I I think that uh, democracy asks a great deal of the citizens 
um, and it is an unreasonable ask for most citizens. And I, that's not a negative statement about uh, individuals' capabilities. It's a realistic statement. Uh, all, probably everyone uh, listening to this is an academic who is overworked and focused on their one bubble of uh, uh, scholarship and research and can recognize that they're not experts in uh, any number of cognate fields that they're regularly asked to comment on. Um, it's hard to be a specialist. It's even harder to be a generalist, and democracy asks us to be specialized generalists in everything. Um, we, we can't do that. Um, if we I'll take this back to the structure of government. Uh, I, I am a, uh, a big believer and proponent of the original electoral college. Um, I uh, these are curious views. I have lots of arguments with uh, friends and colleagues about these ideas. I never want to vote for a uh, federal elected official. I definitely never want to vote for a president because I don't know the first thing about anyone. Uh, running for president. What I want to do is vote for um, an elector. I want to vote for local officials that I can get to know who will then have the opportunity to get to know the uh, uh, presidential candidates and they'll cast votes on my behalf um, because uh, they can get to know the candidates and also they can hold the candidates more accountable than I can. No president is worried about losing my one vote, but uh, a individual elector, they might be, um, and they might be in a better position to hold um, uh, second-tier elected officials accountable. Um, that's a filter. That goes back to uh, how you engineer a communication system to uh, uh, balance signal and noise ratios. Um, you want to focus on what's the meaningful signal. How do you uh, productively use it? How do you uh, constrain, remove, eliminate, ignore uh, the noise in the system? Um, so much of our democracy today is noise. We need to find ways to uh, maximize, identify, and productively use that signal. Well, Gus, thanks so much. This has been a fascinating and provocative conversation, and I look forward to your future work in this area. Yeah, well, thank you very much for the opportunity. If you're flying the flag, then you are naming the name. Well, then you're setting back.
Tear this stupid city down through our trash, our trash, trash, trash.